I, I miss that music that would introduce me. It made me feel kind of special or something. You know, I, 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 we should get some kind of a jingle, you know, to, like, 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 kind of like the Tonight Show or something. Da, 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 or something. I don't know what it is. Maybe not. Maybe that's not one of my better ideas. I'm Greg Boyd, senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Great to see you all here this morning, coming out and sharing God's presence and worship, and now uh, talking about the Word and kingdom life. Let me start with a word of prayer. Father, uh, anoint this word. Help me to stay awake, God. It's been a long night, and I just need your energy. I am thankful, Lord, that it's not about a performance. It's just about sharing uh, what's on my mind and heart. Uh, but God, energize me and uh, help me to stay focused, all of us to stay focused. And God, to use this word, you use this word to build your kingdom in our, in our heart and our minds. Help us to take every thought captive and uh, to be a people who really see the importance of what goes on in our mind and see discipleship as a process of bringing the kingdom to every area of our mind, in our life, in our imagination. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Uh, we uh, have just finished up this series on uh, call we call animate, because it means to bring life, to breathe life into something, and we've been breathing life into our walks with God by focusing on the imagination. It's been... Uh, just a powerful series. I think one of the best things we've done here at Woodland Hills Church, it just has uh, really transformed a lot of lives. Uh, if you have not been here for that series, I encourage you to go back online and, and, uh, and listen to the messages and participate that way and go through the workbook. It's just so, so foundational. And what I'm going to be saying today and, and next week probably um, uh, will not make that much sense if you haven't been part of this series. If, if, you're, if, you're, if this is your first time visiting, it's going to sound very weird, talking about imagination. And depending on what your background is, you may be wondering, why are they talking about make-believe, or why are they talking about something that sounds kind of new-agey or something of the sort? And I can just assure you that it has nothing to do with that. Uh, it rather has to do with the way God wired us to think and this gift He's given us called the imagination and how that can become the, the, the seat of, of our encounter with God in practical and powerful ways. The inner sanctum, we, we, uh, it's been called throughout church history. Uh, and what I want to do this morning, and uh, it'll probably carry over next week, uh, I just want to wrap some of that up. The series is done, but I want to look at a few questions that were asked during the series and use them as sort of teaching opportunities um, to just uh, uh, kind of tie up some loose ends uh, that may still be going on. Before I even do that this morning, however, I'd like to give kind of a book report. Uh, people have sent me a lot of interesting stuff having to do with the imagination. Uh, one of them this week came from a friend of mine, Bobby Bodenhammer, who is a uh, a counselor, a Christian counselor who does a lot of very cool things uh, using the imagination and he understands the power of it and some of you have been touched by his ministry. He's been here to speak before. He sent me uh, this uh, report on this book in one of the chapters of a book. It's by Norman Doidge, D-O-I-D-G-E. Some of you might want to read this book. It's published in 2007 and it's called The Brain That Changes Itself. He sent me chapter 8, which is entitled, Imagination, How Thinking Makes It So. And it was a fascinating chapter. Uh, just confirming so much of what we've been talking about in this Animate series. Uh, the, the chapter centers on sort of giving reports uh, from uh, the research of a man named Alvaro Pascual Leon, who is the head of the laboratory for magnetic brain stimulation in Boston. 
Uh, he pioneered the use of the transcranial magnetic stimulation machine or device called TMS. And uh, that, that's uh, been a, a, a powerful tool on helping people map how the, how, helping scientists map how the brain works, what parts of the brain do what and whatnot. And uh, part of this research that he, he gave, and I'm just going to share a little bit of it, had to do with uh, exploring how imagination shapes the brain and therefore shapes our life. One part of this chapter, he discusses um, the, uh, uh, Pasquale Leone's uh, research in, in dealing with different groups of people, one practicing certain things, the other one imagining practicing certain things and comparing the results. For example, uh, in one of these research projects, he had uh, took two groups of people, non-piano players, never played piano in their life, and one group, he wanted to see how, uh, how well they could learn a particular uh, uh, piano piece in one week. And so one group for two hours a day, five straight days, practiced this song on the piano. The other group, uh, for two hours a day, five days uh, uh, straight, imagined practicing this, this piece on the piano. They sat at a keyboard and just imagined it. Uh, at the end of this uh, week, they found that those who imagined playing, and, and they also had uh, the uh, computer analyzed how effectively they played, and they also uh, did, mapped kind of their brain activity to see how it was working and, and whatnot. And what, what they found was this. The imagining group, the group that only imagined practicing the piano, quote, produced the same physical changes in the motor system as actually playing the piece. Uh, as measured by a computer, they were a little less effective at actually playing it on the actual piano, but within one practice section, they were as good playing the actual piece on the piano as the group that actually practiced uh, two hours a day uh, for five days straight. The point being that uh, when, we, when we imagine things in our mind, we are rehearsing for them, and we're using roughly the same set of neural nets as when we're actually doing something. What goes on in your mind rehearses you for actual life. It actually forms the neural nets, the, the, the brain patterns that shape your life. One of the fascinating things about this chapter is they looked at some real-life stories uh, that confirms some of the science. One of the most fascinating life stories he shares there was uh, of a man, Anatoly Sharansky, who was a Soviet human rights activist uh, who was falsely accused of spying for the U.S., in the Soviet Union in 1977. He was locked in prison for nine years and spent much of that time in solitary confinement, all by himself, no stimulation whatsoever, in a five-by-four room that was kept at close to freezing temperatures. Uh, many times, prisoners go insane in that situation when they go months on end without any kind of human contact in that enclosed environment. What Sharansky did, however, is he used that time. He was an amateur chess player, and so he used that time to imagine playing chess. And this blows my mind that he could do this, but he envisioned a chessboard, and then he would play the white piece and then turn the chessboard around and then play the back piece against himself, turn the board around, and he kept the whole game in his vision uh, as he did this. And he spent all day long, months on end, doing that as a way of just staying sane, occupying his mind while in solitary confinement. He went in as an amateur chess player and came out of this nine-year imprisonment uh, playing at close to a world-class level. In fact, he's one of the few people on the planet that ever beat Garry Kasparov, the Russian chess champion in chess. Uh, and, and he credits it to this nine-year imprisonment. He became a chess a world-class chess player 
uh, just by imagining playing chess in that environment. What we do in the mind shapes our life. It's a power, it is the main determiner of the direction of your life, how you respond to situations. Uh, you are rehearsing for life between your ears all the time. Your imagination never shuts off. You're always seeing pictures, hearing words, hearing music, having sensations. And all of that is, is moving your life in a certain direction. It's the stream you're caught up in, which makes the biblical command to take every thought captive to Christ very, very important. It's going to be impossible for us to live and keep growing as kingdom people in our Christ identity if uh, most of the time we're rehearsing for an identity that's not Christ. What you're rehearsing for is what you'll be good at. We're becoming good at something. The question is, is, is it of God or not? And unless we are the ones taking uh, captive every thought, well, there's somebody else who's already taken the thoughts captive. Your mom took the thoughts captive. Your dad took the thoughts captive. Your life experience has already taken, programmed that imagination. And you're going to keep on running in that stream. The stream has been set for you. And you're rehearsing for it all the time unless we take our thoughts captive. And we have the authority to do that. That's why the Bible tells us to do that. Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are beautiful. Philippians 4.8 says, think on those things. The mind's always going. So the main, as I said last week, brain discipleship is the main discipleship. And that's not true because science has come up with how important the imagination is. Rather, science is now discovering how important the imagination is because it's been true all along, which is why it's a biblical principle. God wired us this way. So it's our responsibility to take thoughts uh, uh, captive. It's powerful. Uh, Spend time where you envision, you envision the truth of who you are in Christ. Run the video of that. Run the video of that while you're seeing yourself in situations where you tend to be least like that. And notice how you respond differently. If you're not rehearsing for it, I guarantee you, you'll never be experiencing it in your actual life. Whereas if we're rehearsing for it and make that part of our regular discipleship, well then it sets the stream of our life in that direction. Now, that's just true because God wired us that this way. But when we introduce Jesus into that equation, well, it becomes exponentially more powerful. When the imagination becomes the inner sanctum, the place where we encounter God in concrete, vivid, and transforming ways, well, now, now it, it's, it's all the more powerful. It just transforms us all the more. One of the things that's been beautiful during this whole series, I've just loved it, is, is the testimonies that we've gotten from people whose lives have just been revolutionized as they are now experiencing the things of God as real instead of just knowing them as theoretical truths. And introducing God to bring in, Jesus into bringing some healing into their life and, and communicating truth to them in powerful, transforming ways. Uh, one testimony I got just this week. Can I give you one example of this? Uh, there's a, a, a person who, a man who this last, uh, about four weeks ago actually, uh, his wife told him that she had had an affair. They had a real difficult marriage, wasn't working well. He admits he was not the husband that he should be. And it sometimes happens, should never happen, but sometimes it does happen. A person goes outside the marriage to get their needs met. He knows that that, that event is not really the problem. That event is a symptom of the problem. And that's how it usually is. Uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's easy for us to make that the whole problem and then the person who didn't have the affair feels justified 
uh, and getting out of the marriage or whatever. But if we look at it in a holistic way, that's always a symptom of the problem. And he knows that. He knows he, he shares responsibility for this. He knows he ought to forgive her and work on the marriage. She wants to make the marriage work and make it a good marriage, a God-glorifying marriage. He knows that. He wants to, but he can't. At least he couldn't. And the reason he couldn't is that he had in his mind, he had imagined what that affair looked like. And it was frozen in his brain. It's as though he was in the room watching it happen. And now he's got that in his mind. And all of our emotions are responses to what's going on in our head, all of them. And so if, if he is virtually in the bedroom where this happened all day long, how is he going to be feeling about his marriage all day long? As he can want to forgive and want to move on and want to work on things, but if he's trapped in that vision and therefore trapped in that emotion, it ain't going nowhere. We've got to take every thought captive. What happened as he introduced Jesus into the situation? As Jesus had him turn that vision of his wife having this affair into sort of a Polaroid picture, a snapshot. And then Jesus says, give me the snapshot. So he, has a, he reduces it down to a picture now. That already takes away some of the emotional energy. Gives it to Jesus. Jesus takes it, takes out a lighter, sets it on fire. And then Jesus says, this is paid in full. As far as the east is from the west, I cast this from me. It is done. It is over. Burns it up. Then the Lord says to him, and now I want you to love your wife the way I've loved you because you're part of my bride. And I want you to forgive your wife for I have forgiven you much more than you're being asked to forgive your wife. And uh, I laid down my life for my bride. Uh, while she was yet a sinner, to make her uh, blameless and spotless, and you're part of that bride, you do the same to your wife. And then out from behind Jesus, in this vision he's having with the Lord, steps his wife, and he sees his wife wearing this uh, beautiful wedding dress. And, and she's been purified, and she's spotless, and she's radiant. And that's the vision now he has of his wife, because it's done, it's gone, it's been paid in full. Now, all the information in the universe could not have transformed him the way that one picture did. Probably took about two minutes, maybe one minute. But see, it's, it's what goes on concretely between the ears that sets the trajectory of our life, that sets our emotions, that sets our motivations, that transforms us. All the information in the world can't do that. The brain discipleship is the main discipleship. And so I encourage this again to get in touch with how we're actually doing life on the inside and to take thoughts captive and then to submit to the Lord all the stuff that's going on there, all the emotions. Find your negative, ungodly flesh emotions. Trace them back a little bit. I guarantee you, you will find some scenario you're running in your head with all five senses that's creating those emotions. All emotions are associated with the, the world in between your ears. Take that captive, you get the emotions captive. You can try to work on the emotions all your life, but unless you get what's driving them, it's not going to do any, kind of, any, any good whatsoever. It has to do with the reality we're running between our ears. Amen. Okay, uh, now we're going to turn to a couple of questions. That was just review. Uh, now I've got half hour to deal with these questions. Uh, this morning we deal with two questions, next week maybe three. Uh, we'll see how this goes. Uh, the two questions I want to address this morning, the first is kind of just a preliminary question. The second is possibly the most important question we can deal with uh, in this whole kind of animate imagination uh, topic. So the preliminary question is this. 
was asked in a, in a number of different ways. Why do evangelical churches, and we kind of fit in that category, why do evangelical churches tend to ignore, if not become very suspicious of, imagination, given how powerful it is? And why, and this is closely related to that question, why have they tended to downplay the visual arts? Why is that? And there's a number of reasons we could give to that. We talked about this in the first message in the Animate series some time ago, about the New Age movement has made people paranoid, and then science has made people think imagination is just make-believe. But one of the main drivers of this, of, of this question, uh, the answer to this question, has to do with church history. Here's what's interesting, is that throughout most of church history, there's always been a few academics that were kind of suspicious of art and imagination because of a Plato, Platonic influence. Plato was really suspicious of, of, of uh, imagination and art for a number of reasons. But on the whole, the church has been very uh, aware of how important imagination was. They didn't call it that. That's a, that's a, a rather new term. The, brain, the brain's ability to entertain images, that's imagination. That's a new concept. But the, the church, in various ways, has always emphasized that, and therefore has always emphasized the importance of the arts. You go to the, the churches in Europe, and uh, uh, they're full of art. There's, there's cathedrals, incredible art, and statues, and, and, and various things that were intended to be aids to help people make concrete, envision, experience, experience uh, things of God. They weren't there just to make the church look pretty. They were there to help people experience God in concrete ways. In fact, stained glass windows were invented for this purpose. They weren't there just to pretty up a church. By the 10th and 11th century, uh, they, uh, they begin to introduce these into churches. And, and, the, and here's why. Remember, they don't have any kind of electricity in those days. So these churches tend to be pretty dark. The only light's coming through the windows. So by putting a stained glass window up there, they're highlighting... This is sort of the visual arts of the 10th and 11th century. They're highlighting these pictures. Now remember, most people in those days couldn't read. They didn't have their own Bibles. All of the Bible they got was what they got when they went to church. So the priest would typically step down and come around, walk around the church and go before one of the stained glass windows and tell the story. If you look at those stained glass windows, they all tell a story, a Bible story. And so they would give instruction using this as visual aids. This is the PowerPoint of the 10th and 11th century. It's brilliant. But it just shows that the church was aware of how important it is to make things concrete. And that's the purpose for the statues and all the other art that, that uh, uh, filled the church. Then the Reformation happened. And I'm a Protestant, so I think there's a lot of great stuff that happened with the Reformation. But it wasn't all great. Uh, and one of the things that wasn't great, one of the things that wasn't great is that uh, it was at this point that many Protestants became suspicious about the imagination and very suspicious about the use of art for religious purposes. One of the main culprits here was John Calvin. God bless him. Uh, John Calvin had this uh, a real platonic model of transcendence where God is defined by being other than the world. And so he had this idea that God is other than everything we can possibly think. God is, 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 is quote-unquote, above any kind of change and above any kind of emotion and above any, being influenced by us. God is even above our ethical categories, which is why, in his view, God can act in ways that we think is evil, but actually because he does it and we have to call it good. And, and so God is this is a completely transcendent being. And therefore, there's no way to represent him in our minds, no way to picture him. That is really idolatry. Combine that with his view that humans are so depraved 
that, that we can't trust our own hearts and we can't trust our own minds. He says the, the heart and the mind is an idol-making factory. And, and, uh, uh, and, and so with that in mind, we can't trust our own two intuitions or our imagination. And therefore, all religious art is rendered suspect. And that idea was tremendously influential during the Reformation period. When some reformers uh, uh, and, and, and some of the, the, the ministers of the Reformation would win over a town, they'd go into the Catholic or Orthodox churches and they'd smash all of the stained glass windows and all of the icons and all of the art. John Calvin said, the, the ideal church is four bare walls and a sermon. Apparently you didn't realize that even when you're speaking, you are, you know, you're giving word pictures and people are already coming up with images in their mind. You can't stop that. But uh, that's where this whole thing came from. And it really is time. It really is time for us to get over this and recover the use, the beautiful, godly kingdom use of the imagination and recover the arts. It's time. Because here, here's the thing. Yes, God is absolutely transcendent. Amen. God is, God is transcendent. Absolutely. God is other than anything. I mean, he's infinitely big. We can't, we can't limit God with our minds and our images. But the way that God is most transcendent is in his love. And his love makes him not just otherworldly, but profoundly thisworldly. As we said in one of the messages, God loves flesh and blood. God loves finite, the finite world. God gets his, himself involved in the finite world. God is, here's the way that God is most other than what we would think. Though he's infinitely big, he makes himself small. He makes himself finite. He makes himself picturable. He becomes a human being. He dies for a fallen race on Calvary. That's the greatest expression of God's transcendence we can imagine. Here's the most beautiful statement of God's transcendence. Jesus saying, if you see me, you see the Father. That is God's transcendence. And so affirming God's transcendence doesn't work against the religious arts and the imagination. It works for it if we understand transcendence not in a Platonic way, but in a Christ-centered way. And so also it's true that we are sinners. We're, we're totally depraved. Apart from Christ, we're lost. Got that? True. But see, we're not apart from Christ anymore. John Calvin got the sinner part really well. He didn't quite grab the, where sin to the ground, grace did much more abound. Where our blindness did abound, uh, our, our vision did much more abound. And so the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, come into, comes into our minds, opens us up, frees us from the one who's been blinding us so that now we can see in our hearts and mind the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're made in the image of God. We're made to commune with God. We're, we're wired that way, and the seat where that all happens is the imagination. And, and so, so I reaffirm, it's time to take back what belongs to God. Amen? It's time to recover the beautiful use of the imagination. It's time to recover sculpturing for God and, and painting for God and poetry for God and music for God and dance for God. It all belongs to God. I am so tired of Christians. As soon as the enemy twists it in some way, we give up. You throw the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, there's bad forms of dance. Therefore, we're not going to dance anymore. Oh, there's bad forms of using the imagination. Oh, so we're not going to imagine anything anymore. We're here to take back the world, not surrender it. For crying out loud. As long as the God. I got a little energy on that. I, I, was, I really was feeling pretty pretty flat when I got up here. I'm, I'm just tired. I hardly slept at all last night. I don't know. Aging and insomnia. What's with that? I, it's, I've always had a little insomnia, but it's getting worse. But okay, that, I, I'm getting some energy. Had nothing to do with the four monster drinks I had either. All right. Here's the second question. I only had one. 
four cups of coffee, but only one monster drink. <laughs> Question number two, and this is foundational to everything here, folks. <clears throat> what does it mean to get our life from God and how do we do it? And this was asked in a, a wide variety of ways. And we're always talking about getting our life from God, how important that is. And, and yet people are saying, well, what does that mean, really? And then how, how do we do that? How do we use imaginative spirituality to do it? Can you make it concrete? Can you make it real practical for us? In various ways, people are saying, look, at it, I, I, I know that I ought not to be as attached to the things of this world as I am, but I, I can't seem to help it. I keep falling back into that. How do I get all my life from God? Now, here, here's why this is important. The kingdom is most fundamentally about getting all of our life from God. I, I, that would be I, I, the, the core defining characteristic of the kingdom. It's not about what we believe, first and foremost, nor is it about what we do, first and foremost. It's about participating in the life and the fullness of God. The kingdom is a new form of life. To get our life from God and from God alone means this, among other things. Here's the core of it. All of our sense of worth and value and significance, at least the core sense of worth and value and significance and security come from God, not from stuff. Uh, we were made with this vacuum. Longing. We all need it. It's not an ungodly thing that you need to feel important and significant. You're made for that. But the longing in our heart can only be met by God. Uh, at least the core of it is supposed to only be met by, by God. In fact, it's there as a homing device to drive us toward God because God wants to pour himself fully into us. To the degree that our inner need for worth and significance and security to be loved, to the degree that that is not being met by God, we invariably, inevitably, and necessarily have to get it from stuff, from what we achieve, from what we acquire, from what we own, from what people think about us, you know, what our reputation is or talents or whatever. We're, we're, we're drinking uh, of worth and value and security from all the stuff around us because we're trying to fill that need which only God can fulfill. We're always running on empty because we never get filled, but we, uh, we're under the delusion that if we just got more of this stuff, well, then we'd be full. We become idolaters to the degree that our inner need for worth, significance, and security isn't being met by God. We become idolaters. And you can beat yourself up for that if you want, and you can say, shame on me, and you can try not to do it. Go ahead. But it's not going to do any good. You might trade idols. That's what usually happens. But you can't help but be an idolater if you're not getting your worth and significance and value from God alone. Now, there's no one way to do this. Uh, there's no formula, no magic bullet here. Um, I know I can say this. It's got to go beyond just information. You can have all the information in the world, but that's not going to give you life. You can know that God is supposed to be your source of life, but that doesn't make him the source of life. You can believe that God is supposed to be the source of life, but that doesn't make him the source of life. You have to experience it. Life is about experience. But there's no one way to experience this. I would encourage all of the spiritual disciplines uh, are, can be means by which we position ourselves to drink deeply from the worth and the significance and the value that comes from God alone. All of them can. Uh, read books like Richard Foster's uh, Celebrating Discipline or Dallas Willard, The Spirit of the Disciplines. And there's other books out there that just talk about the classic spiritual disciplines in the Christian life. And they're all different ways of cultivating a life that's open to the flow of God into us and through us. 
uh, the, the, the discipline of, of community or, or of service or of fasting or solitude or silence. And there's a number of different ways. And they're all good and valuable. But the imagination, imaginative spirituality, is, I find, a powerful, powerful, powerful way of constantly going back and experiencing God as my source of life. Now, I, I want to get real practical here. I'm going to share three three exercises that I find to be very helpful for me in drinking deeply from the the unsurpassable worth and significance and security that comes from God alone, and therefore in getting free from idolatry. Uh, Take these for what they're worth. Uh, worth. Uh, I'll review three. We'll actually practice for a few moments the third one. Uh, But take mental notes on this. And this is a seminar, remember. This is what we do on the weekends. It's a seminar. So, of course, there's assignments uh, at the end of the service at the hub where we just kind of lay out some exercises uh, that you can practice on your own throughout the week. But uh, here they are. The first one uh, we could call resting in Christ. I've called it resting in Christ for, for uh, uh, a number of years now. I'm going to title all these just to help us remember them. Uh, but um, this is what we reviewed several times in the Animate series. Uh, I wrote about this one in the book Seeing is Believing. Um, and so I can go over this one rather quickly. It's just a matter of setting up a time where you, are, you get alone. You have a date with Jesus. A date with Jesus. Where you're just going to be with him. This is a time where you're not going to you know, be spending on intercessory prayer or, or anything else. There's a place for that for sure. But this is a time where you just you know, romance the Lord. You have a date with Jesus. Uh, I encourage people to, to have it. You, you can do this in a group at a time, but there's also a value, a real important value of, uh, of having alone time where you do this. Uh, you turn off the lights. If that helps, it always helps me, having a darkened room. Put on some nice, soft, lyric-less uh, music. If that helps, I, most people find that it does help. kind of opens us up and softens our heart. And then you just envision the place that we talked about early in the Animate series, a place that you can either remember or just envision uh, or represent in some way that is, is, is concrete for you and, and is safe and pleasant. And then you just encounter Jesus, however you represent Jesus. And there, hear and see and sense him communicate to you all the things he's already communicated about you in the Bible. Only now he's using your name. That's so important. Your name, as he looks at you, as his arms are around you, as, his, as he's speaking to you, he uses your name. And here, here you, you hear the Lord say to you things like, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Greg, I love you. Greg, you could not be more significant to me than you are. If you were the only one I created, my love for you would be exactly the same as it is right now. I, I just find that to be a real important word to hear all the time. I think that's true for a lot of people. We think, well, we're just one of the crowd. And Jesus wants to say, no, 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 you're not one of the crowd. He doesn't divide up his love. All of his love is given towards you. Uh, and, and you hear him say, and he communicates to you, you sense him say, uh, you're my child, you're my radiant bride, uh, you're my co-worker, you're so significant, you have important work to do in, in this world. And, and he might tell you more details about that. And the purpose for this time is simply to receive it. You were made to receive, to just drink deeply, hear the words, or, and, and experience the communication as concretely, as vividly, as dynamically as possible. So it's not just information, it's experience. And see, you, here, this is what you were made for. And get in touch with the parts of your being that are hungry 
Sometimes the Lord will even reveal how we try to meet these hungers, feed this hunger in, in inappropriate ways, where things are too important. Sometimes the Lord will show me in one of these times something that has become too important to me, and I didn't even know it. Hardly ever do I know it until he points it out. He says, Greg, it's okay for you to enjoy this. Have fun with this. But you're starting to get life from this. Uh, you're starting to wonder what people think about this. You're, you're start, you know, and, and it, he'll just remind me out of his love. He'll just say, Greg, what you're hungry for is me. And so here, I'll pour it into you, and then you can let that go. Enjoy it, but do it as an expression of the life that you have for free rather than as an idolatrous way of trying to get life. This is how he prunes us. He, and I don't know about you. Maybe I'm just particularly pagan. I know I am, but, but he's always got to be pruning me. Uh, you know, just uh, you, you, you get free one week and then the next week you're back to getting life in inappropriate ways. So these dates can become times where he, you just rest in the fullness of a life pouring into you and he just prunes away from you all the stuff that needs to be pruned. Make that a regular practice and experience fullness of life that way. Just drink it deeply. Here's, a, here's another uh, exercise that uh, uh, I find to be very helpful. And the Holy Spirit will always particularize these in your own life. All right, so I'm just kind of giving you a pattern here. Uh, let the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, work it out with you the way that it best communicates his love to you. But this one we could call dying to live. Dying to live. I was going to call this, uh, you know, animate the zombie, but it seemed just a little bit ghoulish. So I, I, I thought dying to live. And it's based on this uh, wonderful truth that Paul communicates in Philippians, where he says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Galatians 2, he says, I no longer live. I'm dead. But Christ lives in me. Now think about that. I, I, I'm dead. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. Now Paul was physically alive when he wrote this, I'm thinking. So what does he mean by this? And what he means by this, I think quite clearly, is the old Paul that was struggling in this world, the old Paul that was striving to get life into other ways, the old Paul that was concerned, like oh, we're all, you know, tend to be concerned with, uh, you know, uh, what people think and what we acquire in our security and all that. The old, the old Paul that was prone towards idolatry, he is dead. And the life he lives now is the one that's animated by Christ. Everything in his life is focused on Christ, manifesting Christ, getting life from Christ. Enter into how free that would be for a moment. To be like this, to, to be completely dead. I mean, you really are free of concerns, I think, when you die. You're no longer worried about the mortgage payment. You're no longer worried about what Joe thinks about you. Or you're no longer worried. I mean, you're, you're carefree at that point, right? When you're dead. Uh, I've never yet met a corpse that has, is suffering stress. I mean, that's freedom. That is freedom because now, I mean, you're not worried about aging. There, there's nothing that's going to, you're just here to manifest Christ. And then when you die, even that is gain. That's total freedom. And that really is the ideal of the Christian life. And so there's an exercise that helps me move towards that ideal. It's dying to live. Part of it we did a couple of months ago in, in, in a service. I, I called it rehearsing for death. Well, you see prayer as a, you're practicing for death. The reason we fear death is because we're not rehearsing for it. I know that sounds really weird. If, if you're visiting here, you think, does he always talk this weird? Well, no, I guess I do. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Come back for a couple of years and then you can judge for yourself. But you rehearse for death. So in prayer, uh, is, the exercise starts with this. You close your eyes and pretend like you just died. 
Uh, and I sometimes even, will, it helps to, for me to tell a story around that. Like I, I just was in a car wreck or someone just murdered me or, or I just died of cancer or whatever. I just died. And so I'm leaving my body behind and I'm kind of in this spirit mode, sort of just, you know, floating to Jesus. And I just kind of sense, uh, you know, the world leaving behind, I mean, me leaving the world behind. And gone are all the cares and the concerns and all the things I'm struggling for and how am I doing on the schedule and what do people think or whatever. It's all gone. Also gone are all the ways I maybe would try to buttress up myself. It's a good way of getting in touch with the ways, the false ways we buttress up ourselves and give ourselves some security and stuff like that. When you die, you'll notice what is being left behind. And then I'm in the presence of Jesus, stripped of all that, naked, if you will. Now, fortunately, Jesus Christ incarnates perfect love, perfect forgiveness, perfect mercy, so I'm safe. Because I haven't lived a perfect life, but I'm safe in the presence of him, and, and, and he welcomes me into the kingdom. And see, if, if we practice that much, then what happens is you lose your fear of death. Because when you die, you'll be meeting your creator and your savior, and that won't be scary because you've been talking to him every day of your life. It's, it's, it's the strangeness of death that freaks us out. So get used to it. You know, but if you're not practicing it imaginatively, there's no way you're going to be used to it. You'll be freaked out when it comes time to die. You've got to practice uh, ahead of time. Dying to live takes that a step further. And here, I just encourage you to do this. Uh, the Lord you know, I, I will sometimes say to me, Greg, you know, uh, this is a good exercise, but you're not dead yet. <laughs> Someone should come up with a band with that name. You're not dead yet. Um, and, but I want you to live like you were, in a sense. So it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. I want to live in you. All right, so I want you to take the freedom that you have. And I just experienced that freedom. Gone are all the petty stuff that I normally would be concerned with. Take that freedom now that you're dead and go back into your body and live that way. He just encouraged me to go back. Sometimes I ask the Lord to show me a picture of what that looks like. Especially in contexts where I have the hardest time doing it. Those situations, you know, where you are least Christian. Those situations where you tend to lose your temper or you tend to just kind of carnal out on people. Uh, those, those situations where you tend to be most uh, stressed uh, or most attached to stuff. And ask the Lord to show you a picture of what you look like when you step back into your body having just died. What do you look like when you really are living out Paul's statement that it's no longer I that lives but Christ who lives within me? What do you look like when you're, when, you're, when you're living life as a walking, talking temple of the Holy Spirit? When you know that you're filled with joy and peace and confidence? When you're manifesting the beauty of the kingdom 24-7? What do you look, how do you respond to people differently when the fruit of the Spirit is, is, is manifest in your life, including patience? You know, and, and run videos of that. And see, this is, again is the way that the mind rehearses for reality. Uh, and, the, and, and you're not making this up. This is who you truly are. If you're a Jesus person, you're finally getting your brain to line up with what is true. Ask the Lord to show you a picture of that and then step into that picture and begin to live that out. It's dying to live. If you're not practicing it, you'll never do it in your life. So in times with the Lord, just go to him and help him to make that real for you. You're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the final exercise I want to just share with you here in a moment is something like this. And there's different ways of, of, of doing this, of course, but I sometimes find it helpful just to sit and imagine God loving me like a waterfall coming on me. Show this picture of this waterfall. I, I, I see God's love. See, from all eternity, God is relentless, perfect, unwavering love. He just pours it on. He is that. God is this verb of eternal love. 
And so I see him loving me like this giant waterfall just pouring down on me relentlessly. I picture myself as a little pebble on the bottom of that waterfall. And the whole pressure of the waterfall is zeroed in on me, if you can kind of get something like that. Because that is what is true. God doesn't love us with a secondary, you know, kind of derivative love. His being is perfect love, and his being is towards you. Jesus in John 17 prays that we would know that we are loved by the Father with the love that he has for the Son. The same love, because we are in the Son. And so I imagine myself as this pebble, and this love is just pouring on me, and pouring my, and I just soak it up. Sometimes it feels like my sin is so big that I can stop God's love. How successful do you think a pebble would be rebelling against the waterfall? You're a little pebble. A me little pebble. You think you can stop this waterfall? Good luck on that one. Sometimes you want to rebel saying, God, you can't love me like that. It's impossible you love me like that. You can't forgive this way. You can't, you can't, you can't. And if you're doing this exercise, just, 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 just enter into this. God will just be saying, shut up. <laughs> and he drowns out. So I'll just end with, with, with practicing this. A variation on this I just want to share with you because it's on the, on the assignment sheet is to turn the waterfall into the kind of like the brightness of the sun. And, and uh, remember a time where you were just basking in the heat of the sun, like down in Mexico, or I, I remember a time when I was just, just burning up, and, and, and the sun and the brightness represent God's love, and you just let it burn, you, burn away everything that's not supposed to be there, and he just loves you like that. But, I, but I, I, let's, let's end with this waterfall exercise. You are a little pebble. God is the, the, the uh, infinite waterfall. And close your eyes if it helps, and could we darken the lights for a moment, and just enter into that little pebbles the weight of all eternity is bearing down on you this moment and it's all about his perfect love beyond anything you can ever imagine or conceive you are loved this moment like a pebble the bottom of Niagara Falls put yourself there and let the water of God's infinite love pound you and every drop is saying to you I love you with an everlasting love my love is unwavering my love is perfect just receive it And as you envision this magnificent Niagara Falls waterfall uh, pouring on you, realize how small and insignificant your shortcomings are, your problems are. And let the power of that waterfall smash him away. Washes away all of our sins powerful waterfall washes away the scars and the wounds and the objections and just let him do it just let him do it and, and just enjoy it there's parts of you that maybe resist this saying oh that can't be true go ahead and have them but just realize how worthless they are as the waterfall just pounds your little pebble your objections aren't even heard. They're washed away. 
flow on us, Lord. Fall on us, Lord. With relentless, eternal force, drive your life into us. For you, this waterfall, you are our source of life, worth, significance, security. It's all found right here. Just drink it in. Just receive it. As I get ready to close in prayer, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here this morning and there's any need you'd like to have prayed for, we encourage you to come forward. If you want to surrender your life to Christ, start walking with Him as a disciple, I encourage you to come forward. Or if you just want to kneel, you're free to come forward. The music will keep playing. Or if you just want to sit for a little longer, you're free to do that as well. But Father, as we leave this place, God, keep us aware of your relentless, powerful, eternal weight, love pounding into us and helps to be a people who just receive it for you are our life our source our worth it's all found in you nothing else really matters life is Christ nothing else really matters as we leave this place Lord help us to continually receive your life and to overflow with your life towards others and advance your kingdom in us and through us in Jesus name Amen God bless you go out and build the kingdom